This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Are you left wanting more at the end of each episode of this show? Are these short sessions getting you fired up to try new skills for yourself and share the journey with others who are working through the same challenges? Well, the good news is that this podcast is only the beginning. The real action and learning is happening on the Regenerative Skills Discord channel, where you can connect with the whole community to dive deeper into the topics on the show, explore solutions, and share your journey and blooper reel with an active group that can't wait to hear from you. You can get your questions answered and share knowledge and wisdom of your own on a safe platform that, unlike the social media giants, won't steal your personal data to advertise to you in creepy ways. Ditch Facebook and join us where the real skill builders are. Just find the link to the Discord chat on the homepage at regenerativeskills.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So a few months ago, when I covered the topic of land race gardening and crop breeding, I had no idea what a passionate and knowledgeable community around the world that I was tapping into. The seed savers and the plant breeders who I've been in touch with, including quite a few who are part of the Discord community for this podcast, are working on everything from quinoa crosses for tough climates and staple crop production, to the domestication of silverweed and adapted varieties for low maintenance and and so much more. So for the most part though, I've been coming across people who are doing this in their backyards and only occasionally on farms. It kind of made me wonder if there was real potential in bringing heritage seed varieties and land race breeding into larger operations, and if it was even feasible at a large scale. But luckily, Joseph Lofthouse passed me on to the contact of Glenn Roberts, promising that I wouldn't regret reaching out to him and learning about the work that he does at Anson Mills. So I'll give you a little intro. Glenn Roberts founded Anson Mills in 1998 in Charleston, South Carolina with the vision to rematriate lost foods from the 18th and 19th century Southern Pantry. Today, Anson Mills grows and produces artisan organic land-race grain, legume, and oilseed ingredients for chefs and home cooks worldwide, and provides pro bono culinary research support for chefs, pastry chefs, bakers, brewers, and distillers through the Anson Mills Research Labs. Anson Mills provides pro bono seed biosecurity for the growing community of the Southern Organic Place-Based Identity-Preserved Land Race Crop Farmers, and Glenn is the recipient of the USA Artisan of the Year and National Pathfinder Awards, a founding member of the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation, and a pro bono consultant to the Board of Advisors of Stone Barn Center. Now from that bio, you can see that I hit the jackpot in my search for production scale farms working on land race growing projects. Now beyond the work that he's most known for, Glenn is a very multifaceted and multi-talented individual in many other fields, which he describes at the beginning of this episode. From there, he also took me through his journey of rediscovering Carolina gold rice, a heritage variety that he knew from his childhood, but which had all but been lost by the time that he grew up. Glenn also gave me a window into the process of reviving an endangered seed and food variety, as well as the incredible network of people around the world who are studying and working on these challenges. We also explore the culture that is connected to our traditional foods, and how reviving lost genetics is about so much more than putting a different type of seeds in the ground, but rather rediscovering how to grow these strains, and the management of the land and even the community that is involved in caring for this food. 
There are so many fascinating stories and ideas in this interview that open up the world and the potential of land raise growing, as well as a huge network and collection of resources that Glenn and his collaborators have created for those of you who might be interested in getting involved and assisting in these efforts. So I really encourage you to listen through to the end on this one and to check out the links and the resources in the show notes for this episode on the website as well. But anyway, with all that out of the way, I will turn things over now to Glenn Roberts. So welcome, Glenn, to the podcast. It's a real joy to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's an honor to be here all the way from little old South Carolina to Spain and back. Well, it's just a little town where I'm in as well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there is quite a distance in between there. How has your season been looking? Uh, this, for harvest, uh, the season was a nightmare. But for harvest, because we had a hurricane come through everything right here, starting in the mid-gulf and surrounds all the way over to the east coast and come ripping right through here. And although it didn't make news, uh, if you look at pictures of our maize fields and all of our friends' maize fields here in the center of South Carolina, they all look like uh, Nantuato Mezzo uh, agriculture, where they've broken the land race stems in half near harvest. If you go to Oaxaca and go to cornfields this time of year, they're breaking those stems in half. And so all of the maize fields are half height. The hurricane actually mowed all of our old corns exactly like that on its own. So oh, we, wow. we did make it with mesoculture because Mother Nature gave us another run at that. And everyone we know, including us, were able to harvest those knocked over fields because the stems broke in half instead of blowing the whole plant down. Right. Interesting. That is super interesting. Those are wow. very old. We'll have to dig into that as well too later on. But before we go into what it is you're cultivating and the specifics of how, can you give me an idea about the, let's say, indirect journey that you took to get it back into farming? Because I know you did so many things before you you got into land race breeding. True. Uh, my dad grew up farming. He didn't like it as a mill farmer. Uh, you know, so I didn't hear good stories about farming as a kid, although. He retained all the things you do as a farmer. He collected honeys, all different colors, which I always thought was a load of fun, and uh, was constantly going to farms to get food because he knew the difference. Um, mm. And that was in San Diego. So uh, we had native culture there that was right out front. Uh, and then the European conquest ethos at the same time, and then a lot of military. So we had the transient environment with Howard Hughes in the background with the goose and all that stuff. It was nuts growing up, but he was true to the quality of the food and the environment. And um, he definitely was into chemical free horticulture. And I was instilled with that idea from the beginning. My mom uh, grew up not more than 40 miles from where I said I'm in Columbia, South Carolina right now. And so she also uh, was a spoiled rich girl. And then the depression hit and she had no money at all. And she woke up one day and didn't even have money to buy food and realized she had to go to work for her nanny cleaning houses. And that was a big shock for her. Then they realized they're going to have to grow their own food because they couldn't afford to buy it, et cetera, et cetera. 
So my mom was pounding her own rice because rice is endemic to this culture here. Mm-hmm. Pounding it herself for the table. So she essentially grew up in the community of African emancipated enslaved um, here, both here in the coast of South Carolina and knew those cultures well, knew horses, Aiken's the center of the equestrian world here in this state. Um, Winston Churchill might have said that Aiken was the center of the equestrian culture because he lived here uh, back after he after World War II. A few people mm. know that. But the, uh, so the heritage uh, was seed and where my mom grew up, the best seed company was still operating and it was all what we call land race. A lot of people call it heirloom. Means selected by hand. Grows best, no chemicals, grows best, not crowded, grows best with com- with companions. So companion cropping, co-cropping, understories, and all that were all endemic to my mom's upbringing here and on the coast. So I had all that as a kid. I was very lucky. Wow, that's fantastic. And then so from the lines of work that you had done before that, being informed by the traditions and the values of your folks, how was that entry into farming yourself? What was the spark that got you interested? Um, I flew jets in the Air Force, and uh, I was right in the middle of Native culture in Arizona because of that. And I was raised uh, free babysitters. The mission in San Diego was all Native. The Jesuits were there. It was a Jesuit mission. But it was all Native people, and they were growing uh, community crops there, including maize. And so at age five and six, my parents would drop me off because they were performers. They worked with Shaw and um, others in the choral arts, meaning singing. Um, hence, uh, free babysitting, when you have a rehearsal that starts at 10 a.m. and goes until four with a lunch break, what do you do with your kid? Uh, drop him off at the mission, and he thinks he's uh, hanging. Uh, he's a girl. He's working with Native girls. And that's actually how I got exposed to Native culture. I was actually making masa with Native girls when I was a kid. I did. I thought everybody did that. I thought I was one of them. It was weird. It was fun, too. And the flavors were killer. I still love that stuff top to bottom. The, nothing like unadulterated masa, in my mm. view, because... the So that was it. And okay, so what? Uh, what... Right, let me get back to that question there. So, tell me about how the interest in golden rice started, and the development of Anson Mills from that first concept. My mother uh, was a rice person, as everyone in the states and surrounding states were. Uh, The tradition was rice with every meal, and you could be Native, you could be African, you could be African-American, and you could be European descent. It didn't make any difference. Everybody was doing it. And uh, I think the famous statement uh, from President Jimmy Carter, because he was raised as an abject poverty poor boy, and uh, he said that uh, the culture that he was raised in was for breakfast, you had rice and peas. And then you went out to work and you came back at sundown and you had a brand new dish, peas and rice. Uh, Both of them local, both of them hand harvested, both of them hand pounded, prepped for the table. Uh, So I was raised because my mom knew some Pan Am pilots. We were in San Diego. 
she would get them. One of them lived here and he would get rice and done locally, which was hand pounded even then. This was in the 50s and fly it out. And we'd go down to the airport and pick it up from them. Uh, and we'd go every two weeks and get a brand new supply of fresh hand pounded rice. So I was raised on really good rice. And everybody in our family ate rice with every meal because that was her tradition. And my surfer friends thought what, that was like really weird. We had collards. They thought that was even weirder. Uh, but I was uh, the chef for our pet. So I cooked rice for our pets because all of our pets, cats, dogs, the parrot, everybody ate <laughs> rice. Uh, but I was never allowed to cook for the table. My sister did, but I didn't. So I was the pet chef. Kind of fun. That's how I got involved in this culture. Uh, in this culture, rice with every meal still exists. It's not nearly as prevalent as it used to be, but it still exists in most households. Certainly when you go into the Sea Islands, any family that's been there for a while is still rice with every meal, even if they're by an Uncle Ben. Hmm. And so in the discovery of the traditional Carolina gold rice, and I'm sure you had a palette for the differences in that and what is more common to find in the supermarkets then. Tell me about how that turned into an enterprise that got actually into farming and recovering the genetics and the varieties of these flavors that you were accustomed to and that there was a growing market for. Um, be, we were actually raised on Carolina gold rice. Everyone had it and it was easy to grow because everyone understood how to grow it by hand. Uh, it was uh, home plot rice and it was also in great big fields uh, all the way up into the 50s actually here. So we were still exporting rice even though it was very difficult to grow it on an industrial scale. It was still in home gardens and uh, kitchens, uh, probably into the late 70s, early 80s here in the state. But what happened uh, during that era was everyone understood how the system worked and the seed was here. So it was easy to do. And you could keep your own seed if you knew what you were doing and not. But the, the influence uh, is called officially Carolina gold rice. And there were sisters. So they also called the sisters because there was Carolina white rice as well. Mm. We were interested in both. Uh, when I first started, there was no pure Carolina gold rice that just grew as Carolina gold rice because it hadn't been hand selected for a century. So Carolina white was always separate. It's faster in the fields. Uh, it's still killer, but it has a white hull versus a gold hull. And they do have a different aroma flavor profile and different phenotypic response to the season. But those rices were always called the sisters. So if you weren't separating them by hand and growing them separately, you would have both hull colors in the field. And if you were hand harvesting, you could harvest the Carolina white earlier. Hence, if you were having trouble eating, you could get Carolina white into the larder in your house faster than Carolina gold by a week to two weeks, which if you're starving is important makes a difference and uh, yeah the culture moves forward there it's still the two sisters probably in the 1970s and everybody knows this and all of a sudden the interest in carolina gold and its history with regard to the enslaved and its global commerce because the gold is what made it worldwide white only became the number one rice in brazil going south to um 
Chile and Peru. So if you're if you're down there in the 1900 or so, you'd be seeing Carolina white, not Carolina gold. Interestingly, mm. uh, it's faster. That's so. If you're on subsistence, you want something fast out of the field. So that's how we ended up uh, looking at Carolina gold uh, because the world export was Carolina gold, and it became the number one rice in the wealthy elite homes and kitchens in Europe. And then it broke the black curtain in Japan because of the gold hole to this day, still the oldest prefecture in Japan for dyebat houses. Uh, the clay floors for those dyebats are uh, held together with gold husk rice. And we've shipped tons of it for free. We don't sell it uh, to support that culture when asked back in the day. Mm -hmm. I mean, we haven't had an ask in probably a decade, but we used to send a lot of hulls because dibat floors had to have those hulls. Frankly, I don't even know why I should, but I don't. <laughs> and do you have an insight into why the propagation of the gold started to die off other than, I guess, the convenience of an earlier harvest with the white and how it became to to kind of fall into obscurity that needed to be rescued when you came to find it? Easy. Starting in the late 19th century, uh, Mendelian genetics came in. The first thing we did with rices in general, scientifically, was to dwarf the roots because Carolina gold has deep roots compared to modern rice plants. If you look at them, it's massively deeper. Uh, and this is true in wheat and other staples as well. This isn't just exclusive to rice, but after, uh, certainly by after 1800, uh, the second quote unquote fault of Carolina gold rice is that if you insist on growing it as a monoculture, which it was never intended to do as a plant and never did, uh, in knowing places except for seed horticulture, which was done by hand, um, you didn't want a rice that could be almost four feet tall, sometimes even taller than that. Mm. Uh, it's very, it blows down, especially if you don't grow it the way it was meant to be grown, which is in clumps like bushes, which then don't blow down because as a bush, when you plant three or four rice plants together in one hole and then go three feet and do it again, and you have crops in between, you have polyculture, and that rice will stand no matter what's going on and survive floods because it's slightly flood tolerant. I think we can do seven days of full flood anaerobic with Carolina gold rice, maybe more. Mm. Uh, and if you do over and over again, the right phenotypic response is to start extending those anaerobic periods where it doesn't drown. So we saw the intercropping of Carolina gold drop. Then we saw trying to make it an industrial crop where it's planted all by itself. And then it stands up. And if you plant, if you rate it too high, uh, normal rice rate these days is 110 pounds to 160 pounds of rice per acre. Mm -hmm. And Carolina gold, best between 30 and 60 pounds per acre. So mm -hmm. if you try to plant it industrial, plants close together down the road, it becomes a barrier to wind and it blows down and you can't harvest it in the worst cases. In the other cases, it's just horrible to try to harvest it by machine. The other side of the coin is the center of the culture for Carolina gold was here, even though it extended all the way down to South America and around the Gulf in Mexico, uh, Carolina Blanco and Carolina Oro, uh, still present in those cultures still. And, uh, but it faded here because it's agronomics. It's tall rice. 
you can't plant it densely. It doesn't yield at all. So it's kind of insane to even talk about it being in production. But it really isn't if you're growing it with other things like Benny seed, which is a neem suppressor. So the, I've had whole fields of Carolina gold rice go away because of nematodes. They just hit the field. You got rice standing there that's two feet, three feet tall. You go away two weeks, come back, and there's nothing there. It's just glassy water. It comes back. It grows shorter then. So having that neem invasion maybe is a good idea. But the bottom line is um, <laughs> you need to have other crops in those rotations, either grow it with them or others. So that's why rice and peas are a dish because they grow together, although you wouldn't know it today. Mm. And that's why is always part of a rice and a reezy peasy dish on the sea islands. Uh, that's sesame seed, but that's the African version, which is low oil compared to Asian sesames. Most of them are very high oil content. The low oil content's meant to be eaten as whole seed and most nutritious that way and most accessible that way. And Asian sesames uh, are great for oil. They're also very flavorful. So it's not a matter of one being better than the other. It's just a different culture. Fascinating. And this makes me think, what was the process like? Because by the time that you had found or I guess uncovered the little bit of golden rice that was available to, I don't know, purchase or or gather uh, when you were in the process of reviving this as a cultivar, how did you go about learning the nuances of how to grow it? The conditions like this that you mentioned, which are very specific and I can't imagine were this was knowledge that was in wide circulation by the time you did this. What did that process look like? Well, <clears throat> I cheated. <laughs> uh, it wasn't me. Uh, and the litany is phenomenal, starting with the cinematic appealing version of this, which was Dr. Thomas Hargrove, who was an agricultural um, sleuth on a global basis. He'd worked all over the world and he would find lost crops. That was his specialty. Mm. And we, all of us back in the day contended that rice had to have escaped from here in what was called the mosquito fleet, which is how slaves would run away. They got build a little sailboat and then sail off and never come back. And we assumed that they'd go down the Caribbean chain of islands, which the various government posses could pick them up as a runaway and send them back and or resell them. Uh, but by the time they got to the Amazon, if they turn right and go up the Amazon down in Venezuela, they get to the top of it. They're in what we call Colombia today. And we assumed that there was rice there as historian people. I'm not one, but I'm just quoting the historian community. Tom Hartgrove, being a really curious guy, actually took a group of scientists and trekked into the top of the Amazon through the forest from Colombia and got to the top of the Amazon and found Carolina gold rice in the indigenous cultures there oh, and wow. documented all on the way back, the FARC, the terrorist group or the rebel group in Colombia. And it gets kind of hazy what to call anybody down there because right. it's always changing <laughs> line. Um, the FARC discovered them, thought that they were from something called CIAT, C-I-A-T, which is a seed outfit in Colombia, right? It's a seed bank. They thought the CIAT meant CIA. So they captured everybody and they ransomed them. Oh, wow. And they got their money. And Tom Hargrove escaped. And he wrote a book about it, which turned into Proof of Life with Russell Crowe and Meg Ryan. Oh, that's that one. So, no way. Yeah. But in there, Russell Crowe's character 
uh, or excuse me, Meg Ryan's character that's been uh, husband who's been captured was a, uh, I think, a hydraulic engineer, wasn't a rice researcher. <laughs> I always liked the idea somebody searching for seed. I thought it was more mysterious, but they rewrote that in the screenplay, unfortunately. <laughs> but that was Tom Hart. Tom brought that seed back, put it back in the seed banks worldwide, worked with two people who were phenomenal, Dr. Gerdef Kush and Dr. Merle Shepard, both of the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines. Gerdef has three world food prizes and is still to this day probably the most knowledgeable person about rice on the planet, period. There's no one else who could touch him. Um, he's retired, unfortunately. He ran the International Rice Research Institute for decades, and Merle was the entomologist. And you can't be a geneticist without a bug guy. So Merle Shepard, longtime friend of mine, Gerd F2, was right here in Charleston when I started. And he was growing Carolina Gold, and he was actually the instigation for me to go, oh, my God, that's beautiful. Is that the old rice? I didn't even know it was Carolina Gold when I saw it. And he said, that's Carolina Gold. You know about that. And I said, no. So he gave me six books. And he said, go read these and don't come back till you do. Oh. So I went and read the books of Carolina Gold. And I discovered all the things my mom had told me as a kid were right there in the books. And he was actually following that trail here. And he was, as a bug guy, he was actually being a horticulturalist and a seed person. And his texts were wonderful. Dr. Richard Ferry, one of the best Grucciolata scientists in the history of our continent, was his partner in this work. So Merle did the rice and Dr. Richard Ferry did the peas. So we had Reezy Peasy and research. I got to see both right in the same place at the same time. I go, I was raised on this stuff. He said, where'd you grow up? I said, La Jolla, California. He said, no, you weren't. I said, yes, my mom used to live on Edisto Island and live in Aiken and she, this is our food. And he said, really? He said, well, you wanna get involved and help bring this back? And I, I said, well, who's doing it now? And he said, well, Dr. Richard Schultz down in Savannah, need to go talk to him. So I went down and talked to Dick Schultz. Turned out that I'd known him and his wife for a long time because I was building restaurants and he and his wife used to come in filthy from the fields. They were working their own rice on Sundays into one of the restaurants that I built. So I'd known them, but I didn't know they were doing Carolina gold rice. So it just all fell into place really quickly. Yeah, there's some and real serendipitous connections there. Yeah, so Gerd F. Kush, ended up coming out and working with us. Who gets to get that? I'm very lucky. And then Merle and Gerda said, we know somebody that's really brilliant, that's on the way up because we're old. And she's also, and I said, she, they said, yeah, you always want a woman to do this. You, you don't want guys, right? You want a woman. And I said, what the hell does that mean? He said, my mom was alive at the time. And he said, talk to your mother, she'll tell you. She grew rice, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, did you notice what I just said? She grew rice. Wasn't a guy growing the rice. It was her nanny and herself. Isn't that your story? Merle told me your story. And I said, yeah. He said, welcome to rice. Maybe wow. guys are out there, but women are the person doing the seed, always. And I said, wow, that was the first time I'd heard that. So they took me to Anna McClung. And Dr. Anna McClung at the time, was the lead rice geneticist researcher for Texas Rice Improvement uh, and Texas A&M University's Research Center in uh, right outside of Beaumont, Texas. And she also was a liaison uh, at the National Rice Research Center in Stuttgart, Arkansas, which is our national research facility and also the largest rice 
particular in you know best rice seed bank in the United States because it's a practical applied seed bank instead of a bunch of stuff nobody knows where it came from or hardly anybody ever thinks about it. So they're actually doing the practical side of breeding out of our and they maintain our national rice banks for both uh, the secret banks in Colorado, which really aren't secret anymore, and the ones at Aberdeen, Idaho, odd place to have a rice seed bank, but it's that's where it is. So having said that, Anna McClung, who I just spoke to on the phone about an hour ago, who's a wonderful person, was immediately calling me an idiot. Not not to my face to be mean, but just she said, you know, you don't know anything. You need to actually get in the field more. You need to read more. You need to actually study this. You need to think about this on a survival basis for biosecurity. We're already working on climate change. I said, what's climate change? I hadn't even thought about it. And they started working on it in 1983. And she said, we've been working on this since 1983 and we're late. We're scrambling as fast as we can to figure out how we're going to feed people in 2050 to 2100. I said, you mean I have to think about all that? All I want to do is just grow some rice and like give it to people. And she said, yeah, if you're going to be serious about this, you have to. You don't have a choice. And if you're going to work with me, you're going to buckle down and actually start doing it. And so that was the oh. beginning. In Merle, Gerda F. Kush, Tom Hargrove, who also worked with us, I was just lucky. I got the best people, frankly, in the world. Susan McCooch from the McCooch Rice Lab at Cornell. She also helped. I don't know Erica Steiger who's still out there kicking it, right? Erica, Anna's retired, Susan's retiring right now. Erica Steiger is probably one of the best forensic I get out in the middle of nowhere and find stuff besides Tom Hargrove on our planet. She worked with uh, Tondi Vinalda, who's head of uh, the University of Lights and Rice Genetics Research Center, and she's an anthropologist and an uh, archaeobotanist and biologist. So she's all kinds of things. Um, she has been working with Erica for decades, and Erica has been her point person on the Americas. Erica has found more rices that we thought were lost than any other human being in the last couple of centuries, which is amazing. So I got to work with Erica. I'm just lucky. I had no reason uh, intellectually or scientifically or anything else. I've got a bachelor's degree, for Christ's sakes, and it's in music and German literature and chemistry. It doesn't have anything to do with genetics. Uh, so, you know, I'm just lucky. Wow, what an incredible Very story. Lucky. It sounds like in this effort of wanting to grow the rice that you ate when growing up, you uncovered this other world of much larger goals and visions of what to do for the protection of important genetics in food and the breeding programs necessary for making them adaptable into a changing climate. How much of that did you embrace in the growing scope of the project as it's taken form? Uh, starting in 2002, where Dr. Anna McClung told me she wasn't going to work with me unless I probed up, seriously, because she didn't have time. I got it. Um, it. It sounded mean at first, but it, it wasn't mean. She was actually telling me, you don't have any time and neither do I. You know, so you can either get in here and go to work and do it right or you know, you can flounder around and do what you want to do. And that's all romantic. And maybe you'll stumble across stuff that's really important. You know, the best discoveries have not come out of the lab, have not come out of like lots of consideration. They're, they're happening in the field. It's called the farmer's shadow. And mm -hmm. our best discoveries come from there. But that doesn't ensure us for pace. She said, we're under a new pace. We've got climate change. And I kept saying, well, what's that? Really? You know, I wasn't thinking. 
And when I finally understood what she said, which was about 2003, I jumped in completely. And just from then on, anything she said, I just did, which frankly, my phone call with her now 20 years later, just an hour ago, she was telling me this, that, and the other thing. And I just said, yes, I didn't ask questions because she doesn't have a lot of time. She's still working even though she's retired. Crazy. Uh, she's working with Stone Barn Center uh, with Dan Barber and Jack Alger and Jason Grower and the rest of the people up there. And guess who their number one researcher is for rice up there? It's a woman. Her name's Tess. I didn't even get her last name. I said, okay, because I was worried. I said, Anna, there's three guys working on your projects up there. Seriously? She said, no, there's a woman. Her name's Tess. She's actually doing the work. I said, oh, thank God. <laughs> okay, so let's move from there now into some of the main learnings. It sounds like you got put on a fast track by some of the most serious people in this sphere. Gave you reading material, gave you homework and things to study to get up to speed. What were some of the main learnings that made possible what you have developed since then? I hated the idea that I'd have to think about genetics or classical breeding on a scientific level. I didn't want to do this scientifically. I was in the hospitality industry. I built hotels and restaurants for 20 some years, almost 30 years with my current business partner, Catherine Schopper, who's we're still business partners now coming up 42 years, I think all day, something like that. It's mm -hmm. nuts. But the, I didn't want to do science. I wanted to do sensory. I wanted to taste it. I wanted to eat it. And I said, okay, the difference between scientists and me is scientists know works just as well for a scientist as yes. I said, I don't have time for that. Deaths don't want to hear no. They want flavor. They want aroma profile. They want the food to grip the psyche and palate of their clients and induce them to want to return. And if you can provide anything with a wide, attractive and riveting aroma flavor profile that's memorable, you have the chef and the chef has his audience, her mm -hmm. audience, doesn't matter who it is. So we started, our first clients were chefs. We did no retail and we said, we're going to grow for chefs and we don't care about yield because there's not a whole lot of chefs out there that even know what this is. So trying to get it started is going to be difficult. And a lot of people just jumped in. Tom Keller back in the day, uh, uh, immediately. Um, we had John John Gerichten, who hardly anyone knew who he was, immediately. Uh, we had Tom Colicchio. No one knew who he was. He was on the line of one of Tom Keller's restaurants, along with Anthony Bourdain, right? We had the help of all those people for free because they were on the line of Tom Keller's restaurant. And it just kept snowballing. And everybody we know, up to and including Jose Andres, was one of our first clients in D.C. Nobody knew who he was or what he was capable of then. Now he's world famous and he's doing a series on Spain right now because that's he's Spanish. That makes sense. Um, so we were just lucky over and over and over again. But the promise behind the luck was we were growing the crops chemical free. We're spacing them because we didn't give a crap how much yield we got. We wanted flavor. And then I started reading deeply because of who I was working with. And on the uh, aroma flavor side, it turned out to be aroma equals flavor equals nutrition equals resilience equals biosecurity. And those links started happening. 
and there's the old as farming. And then I stumbled into, because of a guy named Dr. David Shields, who was a historian, uh, told me about uh, a guy named Cooper and another guy who wrote Rice Gold, Bagwell, who had done work right here, not more than two blocks from where I sit, which is kind of interesting. Both of them worked up here on rice seed uh, in the early 1800s. And it was interesting that Bagwell uh, was a, from a noble family in Champagne, France, and had grown up in the champagne industry in Europe and came here to marry a very wealthy South Carolina woman and brought all of his research in both Viticulture, who's Herbermont uh, and the rest of them all worked with him. Uh, but Herbermont himself was the guy who actually did the hard work with sensory for all kinds of plants here. So I started looking at that century going, ah, now we're talking about wine industry. I was in the wine industry, worked with the best, Manny Burke, who does Madeiras worldwide, et cetera, et cetera. Danny Haas, who's a Vineyard Brands, whose dad was a friend of mine from way back before I even knew who Danny was. Danny wasn't actually in the wine industry when I first met his dad. So we were in the wine industry working with the best of the people on the planet. I'm going, what, could it be that Food, staples especially, can be treated like wine, just like grapes. And then I took this to Anna McClung. She said, really? What is it with you? Why are you hesitating on this? Of course, it's called phenotypic plasticity, called terroir in wine, right? It's the same thing. All plants respond if their genetics are wide open to terroir. It's not just wine. Barley does it. You know, Emmer does it. And guess what else? Rice. I said, seriously, so if I think really hard on tilth and I look at the various plots like I was looking at viticulture, am I going to come up with different aroma flavor profiles? She said, if you treat the rice right, yes. If you kill it when you're harvesting it and let it go dormant, maybe not. She said, I don't know how many people have done sensory profile work like wine on rice, she said, but it's obvious it's a plant. It'll do it just like anything else. That's where this all really started with chefs. Mm. When we started actually to them, said this rice was grown here, that terroir reflects like this. Here's the aroma flavor profile, just like we were offering them wine. And they're going, where have you been, right? This is what we needed the whole time. And guess where we sold our first rice? It wasn't here. It was in San Francisco. Uh -huh. the wine Full circle. We sold winemakers and Peter Jacobson started growing it across from Tom Keller's restaurant up in Napa, you know, and it just took off from there and came back across the country. Charlie Trotter, who was alive then, these are all ancient uh, people in the food business, but Charlie Trotter in Chicago uh, just named the top chef that was known woman or man anywhere. And we did it. Mashama Bailey, uh, lately, who's building a restaurant in Paris right now, by the way. I think it's open. Uh, just opened in the last two weeks. Uh, Mashama was a line cook in New York. I met her there uh, working <laughs> at a world-famous restaurant, and she was just a line cook. And then she came down here and opened her restaurants. She actually was the latest person to go worldwide that was into this. Sean Brock was into this, actually grew rice with us harvested rice with us. He was like me. He liked to get out and get dirty. Uh, so uh, that was a load of fun. So we've done tons of work 
directly on aroma flavor profile, and it's resulted in Sean today has one of the best sensory labs in the world. And that's right. Nashville, who would have known? And it comes out of his work with Mays uh, and Rice, and we were right there with him doing it. Uh, Michael Shemtov, who's been very successful, another person early on with wheat, since he's Jewish heritage and Hebrew culture steeped and really into the motherland, he understood emmer and its bread forms and all that. So we were able to transfer our interest in rice aroma flavor sensory profile into other staples. And we sort of did it backwards. And then in looking at native culture, it goes all the way back to working with native girls, doing a matate, making masa from really good corn that's grown chemical free, knowing full well that I missed the reality of that, even though I could remember all the tastes. So they're mm. all unified. Well, so you breezed over some really important aspects of this before, which is that this terroir of these aspects of the cultivars that you're dealing with are only possible if the genetics are wide open and if you don't kill it in the harvest and the processing. Can you expand on those things? Yeah, simply uh, because this gets complicated really fast. And frankly, I refuse to get super smart about anything because you miss what's going on in the field if you do that but mm -hmm. to keep it in lay terms um, you really want the expression to be there without thinking like a scientist so in order to even do this You've got to think about all the conditions that hit a plant and then look for the exceptions because that's actually where the power is. And having that kind of attitude, I didn't have that inherently. My, I think my dad did, honestly, and I know my grandfather did. When I think back on I can remember my grandfather was a preacher but grew all his own stuff uh, and did that for community feed. Um, he had a photographic palette. And I used to wonder at the fact that he could tell which corn variety he was tasting in sweet corn. He knew it instantly. And to me, it was sweet corn. And I hadn't even thought about it. And I think back on those things going, huh, that's why my dad collected all those different colored honeys, because he was thinking about honey like wine. And then that actually pervaded everything that we did early on with regard to developing these cultivars so i think what we skipped over uh, to date would be how difficult it was to do seed and how hard it was to convince people to stop putting chemicals on seed and the fact that if you put chemicals on seed you lose the plant even if it looks exactly like the plant you're looking for the aroma flavor profile goes flat um, if you don't harvest it right uh, you kill the seed then it's anaerobic Dormancy, there's nothing wrong with that. Money used to be based on anaerobic cereal culture, staple culture. You know, if your dowries were done in chests of anaerobic crops that could be planted, they were viable, but they were dormant. Hence, they were not breathing oxygen anymore. They were respiring CO2 if respiring at all. And in that state, kept sequestered. And we've seen these uh, seeds actually survive and be viable over thousands of years out of Egyptian culture during, during archaeological digs. We find caches of seed because it was good luck. 
and it was also the fuel to go on to the next world, et cetera, et cetera, which becomes really interesting because that seems to be a global phenomenon, staples in a death scene that takes you into the next realm. That actually keeps happening in every culture prior to us understanding the unification of global culture. So having said that, all the way back to this idea, plants themselves have an expression, the seed has an expression, and its most expressive state is when it's aerobic, meaning viable, meaning you plant it and it can grow right then. It doesn't have any dormancy, so you don't have to bang it around like rice seed that's dormant. You actually have to drop it in the sun outside to get the dormancy to go away. Otherwise, you put it in the field and it'll sit there for two weeks and do nothing and rot when you're trying to grow rice. And that's the last thing you want is to fly and or drill thousands of pounds to hundreds of thousands of pounds of rice seed into a field and have no plants come up and have to do it again. That's very expensive. So having started to understand the nature, nature of that, we figured out that it wasn't just the terroir, it wasn't just the variety itself, because recovering Carolina Gold Rice and putting it in production was done, not by me, but by Dick Schultz and his son, Richard Schultz Jr., with John Martin Taylor before I even got started. So got to make sure we say that. By the same token, no one was in production meaning producing a lot of this, no one was in production with Carolina Gold Rice. Dick Schultz was giving the rice away to his church who was selling it to develop funds for his church. It was a smallish crop and always was and intended to be. Uh, no one had thought about the idea that we could actually base a resilient staple on a full system. And today there's thousands of acres of Carolina Gold Rice growing and it's due to the work <clears throat> of Merle Shepard, Dr. Anna McClung, who translated that and said, okay, why would you do this? It doesn't yield. Why would you do this? It'll blow over. And the answer is, if you learn how to grow it right, it does yield. It doesn't yield like modern rices. But if you look at nutrition per acre, I think you're probably beating modern rices still. That's my belief. Now, do, do I have peer review science behind that? The answer is we have some. It's not conclusive, but I can conjecture that because this system is ancient and Mendelian and forward systems are not even three centuries old yet, <laughs> that I can wonder if for thousands of years, if the other stuff worked, even if we still weren't feeding the planet correctly, and we're still not, even if we're more people are being fed, I know Gates who I respect on lots of levels, but that thing where everybody says, well, fewer people are starving to death now than ever were in history. And you're going starving to death against what? What nutrition are we actually feeding these people? Have we decided that? Have we actually bred for the kind of nutrition that actually works over eons and not over centuries? And the answer is hardly anyone's even thinking that way. So if you actually develop a land race seed, one that's been around forever, and take it forward, that seed has capabilities that no one even knows today, because we've forgotten them all. Rediscovering them is difficult. And how does that work? Well, it's really easy. Uh, if it worked before, it'll work again, but it only works the way it worked before. So you can't grow this stuff like a modern crop. And that was the toughest turtle to get over. 
rating it down where normal rice wants to go in between 110 and 200 plus pounds per acre. Carolina gold will not mature out right over 60 pounds. It's not even the same plant. Yeah. It gets crowded. It doesn't like it and we're done. So having said that, going all the way back to how this impacts um, society, looking at this forces everyone to stop and think this flavor and this tradition, uh, no matter whether it's based on the horrifics of slavery, which obviously it is, um, this flavor wasn't always based on slavery. This flavor was actually based on success of societies, not enslavement. Mm-hmm. have to look past recent history, even though that's cruel, because no one wants to negate what happened, but you have to look past it. Uh, and I can think of so many Celt cultures where you could pull this in and say, well, what about the distribution of Emmer and the slavery there? Let's talk about Egypt. And you can go there and we can get bogged down all the time on social stuff, which we should. But by the same token, we need to have answers for feeding for the future and also respect the past at the same time. And I tend to focus on what we're going to be doing 50 years from now. And these things are what the basis are for fast crops. Crops that you go direct seed and 38 days later, you've got a dry staple plant that you can actually store somewhere and feed somebody Uh, versus Carolina gold. That's 120 days plus maybe some years in the field, which is a lot of field risk. So those are all the questions that are out there right now. Now, That's a lot to unpack. It makes me think, so you probably haven't dialed in exactly how you want the cultivation regime for this rice to be, but I would imagine you've learned a lot in what it responds to, what it is resilient against, and the management that kind of favors the genetic diversity within this crop. What does that look like out on the field for you? How does that time within the schedule and the calendar that you have for cultivation? It's really easy because I copy off the smart girl, as they used to say when I was in elementary school. Um, And that would be uh, the oldest farming systems on the planet. Milta on our continents, Mm -hmm. which is directly aligned, almost identical with different plant sets with the sun cycle in Africa, which up until right today, and I haven't heard any evidence to counter that, is the oldest successful farming system on the planet. And when we talk about regenerative agriculture, RA to be short, and resilience, we're actually really talking about the sun cycle. And it was employed here for all the wrong reasons, but it was also in all the hidden gardens that we don't know anything about because one, you couldn't write about them because that was against the law. So you go to jail or get whipped or, and or get killed for writing or reading as an enslaved person, but you couldn't be denied the secret part of your life, growing your own foods the way they're supposed to be grown. That's the sun cycle with up to maybe 14, 15 plants in one area, just like Milpa, where everything's symbiotically placed in relationship to all the other plants. And they do symbiotic things to both develop tilth to make the soil healthier where they're growing and also make each plant healthier, which means, goes back to that thing about Carolina gold, getting lonely growing all by itself mm-hmm. so we actually explored that and kept going back farther and farther and then it was obvious that it's the sun cycle it's african 
and regenerative ag. Actually, if you talk to the leaders of regen ag worldwide, they want to go talk to Aboriginal people in Australia. They want to go to Africa and study because it's still there if you go far enough out in the wilderness and look. And that is the oldest farming successful system on the planet. And we chose that polyculture, which is the name for multiple plants in the same plot, and studying how the relationships between all the plants work and what it does to the soil for future crops. And could we get to what's called native tilth, meaning plants that take care of the, the ground, the environment, and themselves at the same time. And since we were in the Ace Basin, which is one of the most diverse wildlife areas, I think it is the most diverse wildlife area on the East Coast. It also has the most critters, both mosquitoes and large alligators, and it's uh, can be a lot of fun or it can be terrorizing too. Those things go together. Our yeah. Base, yeah, our base research was how do we feed the habitat and humanity at the same time? That sounds really overarching or something. It sounds kind of silly when I say That's it that way, goal. but is how do we keep critters out of our human field? And it turns out we had to plant more food for critters than we did for people in order to get people fed. That was fun because those decoy plots actually turn out to be a lot more inventive than the actual fields themselves, even in the sun cycle where you're doing polyculture and things like that. And so what are the polycultures that are working well with Caroline and gold rice? Uh, well, we had clover, the 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 two crop uh, chemfree started interrupted the entire tradition of this. Uh, and in Europe, the clover revolution, which is now today, we call it regenerative ag if we're growing clover under a monocrop, which I find hilarious because that's uh, we had riots here with the clover revolution for industrial milling. Uh, when we only could do thick brand wheat because thin brand wheat uh, wouldn't mill in the new industrial roller mills. So they stopped taking in all these beautiful thin brand, super ancient wheats and only took the thick ones. Uh, same thing for rices. They wanted short stature rices that were easy to mill. And so the millers started telling everybody what they wanted for food instead of the public. And in doing so, the, we started feeding animals, especially wild animals, better than we feed people. And it's called the food plot industry here in the U.S. And they still had, interestingly, they were still on totally land-race genetics. Why? Because wildlife didn't want to eat the modern crops. We don't have to conclude why. The fact that they were hungry and wanted to eat stuff and didn't want to eat crops right in front of them that were genetically modified and or whatever is really interesting and to this day if you have wild ducks flying around your rice field in this state and you have clear field rice which is modern and pretty much needs a helicopter to pollinate it i mean come on how did we get there <laughs> a helicopter is now a tractor implement for a farm to pollinate crazy rice that grows and doesn't let anything else grow it's perfectly you just put the seed in walk away and the only thing extra you need is a helicopter and you're going, I'm not getting it. But when you talk about flights of thousands of wild ducks or geese, where do they land to eat? They will pick Clearfield last over Carolina Gold Rice and its brethren, sister in, in the fields. That's a good 
education. Our decoy plots then had to be much more nutritious than our human plots when we started. And we said, well, why are the wild animals getting all the good stuff? We don't mind planting for them because we don't care about yield and we actually want the space and don't want to hurt the habitat because the Eighth Basin is where I'm talking about and that's the wildest place on the East Coast. And we didn't want to interrupt the habitat. In fact, we were told we couldn't by some of these landowners. Mm -hmm. So our research there was if the wild animals are liking this, why aren't we doing this for people? If you look at the set of crops they were using to do it, it was all stuff out of the Jesuit culture for rye and the straight out of Africa for peas. And the rices were all very, very old. Mm-hmm. And some of them were Carolina Gold all is a central part of long grain breeding, still is. And African rice, the oldest, highest, revealed religious and spiritual rice of Africa, which we would call (laughs) its wild version is called weedy red here in the country, but it's glabarima rice. Mm -hmm. That is in all our seed banks, one of the basics for for breeding. And Carolina gold is the basic for long grain breeding for genes that are effective for new rices. And our big deal these days is to breed new rices that actually have the nutrition profile and the attractiveness for both wildlife and people that will sustain over the horizon. So they're finding them and letting them cross on their own in the fields instead of doing a lot of Mendelian or CRISPR or gene drive or whatever. The people that are really working on the ground are actually working with field crosses. And that's Celtic. That goes back to Stonehenge and beyond. And it goes back to Asia and the high plains of China, et cetera, et cetera. And the earliest recorded records in Africa and Indonesia and Japan and Korea. It's global. That is unreal. And so it makes me think, too, given that the golden rice was your gateway into this space that made all of these connections, the people who opened up a learning journey and the the chefs and the innovators in the food industry who were interested in investing in a project like this and getting better flavors and such. How has this grown and evolved? And tell me about some of the other cultivars that have come since this first project. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think the first thing to note is that throughout recorded history, although money was measured in seed for biosecurity, for all civilizations, it's inescapable. If you want to eat, you better have seed to grow the next crop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that becomes the basis of our stock stock exchange through Arl. When the Hebrew communities moved their center to Arl, they started selling futures on seed because the Camargue was a developing rice uh, place in France, and they were trading that same concept all the way up through Spain, Portugal, into England and the British Isles. And they were actually able to convince people from Arles, France, globally, including the Madeira culture, which was trading throughout the entire world through Madeira and other global centers, that this was a wonderful idea. And that's where the stock exchange came from. That's why we know about stocks and futures. They started with seed. We took that same notion backwards and went, okay, what do we do? for seed and where do we go next if we think we have 
biosecurity for Carolina Gold. So the first thing we did in 2001 was declare at the insistence of lots of people uh, that I knew personally, not necessarily scientists, uh, we decided we couldn't ever monetize seed. And then as we started to understand biosecurity, working with Dr. Anna McClung, Gerda Kush, Merle Shepard, and others, we started to understand biosecurity concerns. And as we did that, we founded the first organic seed house in the state of South Carolina. And today, that asset in that seed house is, if you put the whole facility together, Anson Mill Seed House is in Orangeburg, South Carolina. It's 33 miles from the mill. And it's there because it's the center of all the agriculture research work and production that we're doing in these states. Um, so it's convenient that way. It's right on, right off the interstate. So it's good. Uh, so we have uh, today, as of its current inventory, it was popping $800,000. And that is farm prices, FOB farm. That is not commercial seed prices. We put commercial seed prices on it. So it's one and a half times more. So it's over $2 million worth of commercial seed um, that we have in that warehouse for biosecurity. And we don't monetize it. We send it all over the world for free. Mm. So, and all of our farmers get free seed. They're not charged before, during, or after harvest. We don't deduct it from anything. And we also pay higher prices at production. If you're running chem free and you're farming with us, we get the pick of the litter because we pay more than anybody else. So that mechanism has been really helpful. And that was the way everybody thought about agriculture here before the industrial revolution. Your neighbors were your seed bank. We yeah. didn't have neighbors, so we created the bank. <laughs> what a, I don't want to just say innovative, because like you said, this is traditional. This is the yeah. way that communities built wealth over generations but it really does buck the trend of where the industry has gone and the motivations that most companies have. How has this turned into an enterprise over time? Like, were these the values that you went into it with? Or has this, some, has this become something that has emerged through the relationships that helped it to grow? Well, we're, it's the second point you make. The relationships are all, and we've, we set out from the beginning saying, okay, we're going to treat this. Uh, it sounds precious. We didn't mean it that way, but it does. And I haven't thought up another descriptor for it, but uh, we're going to set this up like a boutique winery. And obviously then we're only going to deal directly. And we thought we weren't going to do retail at all. Uh, when we started, we're only going to deal directly with the best wine palettes, quote unquote, in the world. We started with that idea because we already had been involved in the world wine business. Uh, Lay Knowles and, like I said, Robert Haas, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Manny Burke had given us a world inkling of this because we were in the wine industry and we knew how that worked globally. And we also knew how it worked on an estate basis in California because we had been out there studying it and working within those communities for a long time. So they said, how do we put this together for here? And do we have yeast labs like the wine industry? Do we have culinary sensory labs like the wine industry? And the answer was sort of and probably not. Uh, mostly in the, the most advanced sensory labs for food in the United States, not wine, are, are run on a science basis. And they're very good for what they do. They evaluate an industrial commodity for its acceptance 
and its sustainability and its impact on the market. They don't think like the best chefs on the world. We wanted to do something and have the sensory worked for chefs. We wanted to impact chefs first because every chef in marketing, how's this? Every chef has at least 10,000 people that they deal with throughout short periods in their career to annual, depending on what size restaurant they have. Mm -hmm. And that's an amazing amount of both communication potential and honestly, there it doesn't need to be verbal. Chefs don't rely on, oh, it's great to have a dissertation table side about the aroma flavor profile and the ingredients mm-hmm. and process involved, which can get incredibly complicated and boring at the table too. But the bottom line is it's great to have that information, but it only speaks when you taste something. And mm-hmm. we worked with uh, so many chefs that kept saying, I don't care what you're sending me for literature. I don't care what the culture is, even though I really respect what you're talking about. (laughs) The only thing I care about is whether or not my staff's going to remember this. It's got palate memory and my guests are going to remember it. And I think I have a way to judge that. I just talked to Mike Latta at FIG two weeks ago. (laughs) He's reminded me that, yeah, he's still in charge of what he's doing because he's the one that's having to listen to guests to know even if his world-class talents being wasted or whether he's actually done something that impacts their life and makes them want to do more of it. So that made it really easy on that level because all the science backs it up in the long term. That's the one that I didn't realize when we started that when we got into it really deeply, I did understand how it worked in the wine industry. I had no idea you could do it in food. Well, so let's dig into that a little bit more. The assessments by which you are gauging the success, the maturation, the quality of processing and the end product of what you're producing. Because like you said, so much of this is an experience. It's something that plays with the the taste and the observational capacities of the people who interact with it, who consume it. But at the same time, you're also doing scientific studies, you're gathering data, you're looking at polyphenols, you're looking at nutrient density. I'm curious about how you're assessing all of these things. And honestly, what you consider to be success when you get the information back. Uh, Well, if you're speaking on a sensory level, uh, we are very old school we're doing it like the jesuit communities did it in italy uh prior to the 17th century where they were actually managing their crops by flavor and they were very prolific on how they wrote about sensory and its lead for crops because they knew flavor equals nutrition and they were in a community basis where they were guaranteeing biosecurity for communities where they were and they only succeeded in their community endeavors if they could develop the highest flavor possible. Hence, we see all kinds of post-harvest transformations get codified in the pharmacopoeia, whereas we would normally be looking in the culinary and the herbal. And they were the first people to actually note the fact 
in cultures that where the bifurcation between pharmacopoeia and the herbal and the culinary were extant. They were the first sect to actually codify this, mainly because they had the power to do it uh, and the intellectual capacity, and they had access to printed material that no one else could. So kind of like a preordained system, but they actually codified all this and rice becomes something that's in both the herbal and the pharmacopoeia worldwide and always has been where the there's no bifurcation between the two and it's just pharmacopoeia herbals same thing rice is always number one in there for staples because it's peptic so with, if you look at the medicine aspect and come back into the flavor aspect and you have the wine industry on this side doing that flavor set that would be like the Jesuits understanding how to manage a crop in the field by tasting it. And the other side would be managing it according to its effects on human health, which they also were deeply engaged in tons of very old, old beast, the bone comes to mind right off the bat, uh, extremely old for health. Interesting. And we've managed to move way away from that in our consciousness in this country. So the bottom line in my research and everything I've done has not to become a medical researcher, leave that to others, not to become a horticultural research, leave that to others, a researcher, but to become a recipient, a person who actually is experiencing this and not making judgments for whomever, because what we want is to load everything that we've covered so far today into seed and share it as quickly and as broadly and as diversified as possible. That means underserved communities all the way to lead farms, I don't care. Because what we want is for other people to do this work themselves, even if it's like <laughs> planting little plots in Brooklyn, in New York State, in New York City, uh, across the river and giving them one little petal rice mill. Uh, they grow a six by six plot and then they harvest it by hand and take it and put it in a little petal rice mill and make brown rice and cook it. Or at the New York Botanical Gardens or the Smithsonian at the African American Museum or the National Botanical Gardens, on and on and on. Wherever it is, we just throw seed at them. We provide funding if they want it. And we say, can you please disseminate the ideas here and let the public participate? And that's been where we've gone with chefs. Uh, we're in allied programs with chefs on the same level all across this country and work overseas as well. Wow, there's uh, there's so many follow-up questions that I have for something like that. This is clearly a larger movement. And I'm curious what you think of as its growth and its trajectory. Do you see this potentially being able to replace the industrialized food system that we currently have by moving back to valuing these other aspects of a yield beyond just the quantity? And if it's even feasible with the systems that we currently have, like what would have to change and what would you like to see happen? Well, the, that's the perfect question because it leads to something that ties all this together. Um, the idea would not be replacement. The idea, in my opinion, and unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you're looking at it, 
the ideas behind all of the postdoc geneticists that I work with, and there's lots of them, um, they all, like I said, started reacting to where we're going in the 80s, some of them even before then. Uh, and instead of constantly reacting to the latest crisis, which is absolutely necessary, no, uh, not trying to take anything away from the massive amount of work that is being created by catastrophic occurrences throughout our country and around the world too. By the same token, what's gonna be here if this continues? That's where we work. And <laughs> I, I did something, I'm not sure it was good or bad because I haven't done it for very long yet, but I started last year with 40 days to green pizza because I couldn't think of anything else a grade school person could understand. I know that everybody likes pizza by the time they get in grade school. It's the number one food now worldwide. Japan has the best pizza in the world right now, quote unquote, according to whomever is out there judging pizza, which I find hilarious too, since it's flatbread. And that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. But mm -hmm. if you want to pick something that's been anglicized and beat up as a concept, I don't think you can get any food that's been beat up more than whatever you want to call pizza and whatever origins you put on it. For us, uh, we look at 40 days, meaning I, I have a seed in my hand, I put it in the ground and I come up sometime between then and 40 days later and I've got a staple plant that I'm harvesting, I can turn to flour and make bread. That's endemic to mankind and womankind and civilization to get it neutral uh, and has been since the conscious part of non, by the way, uh, domestic farming. That is hunter-gatherer. That's getting a bunch of wild seeds and smashing them on a rock and spitting on it and putting that rock by the fire and baking a little cookie for yourself for the next morning because you're starving to death and you haven't bagged any game. Everybody knows that one. Do we want to go there? I'm not sure. I'd like to go there as an experiment. I don't think I want to live there and I don't think anyone else does. So our idea of 40 days pizza is all of the things that you can put in the ground and harvest in 40 days and make pizza with. So we're talking about Benny, see that sesame, African sesame, super fast. Uh, we're talking about buckwheats that grow in under that time. We're talking about chickpeas, especially that will grow in anything. You can throw chickpeas in a parking lot and throw some compost in that direction and come back and 40 days and you've got food. Uh, you don't even need to cultivate them, right? They've been around forever. And we forget mm -hmm. that, stop and think about it, Farinata in Italy and Soca in France dates for sure. Are you still there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I apologize. No worries. Uh, predates that we do, right? That's the idea. So good. Not necessarily based on chickpeas, although if you go to India, you find it's there. Um, but they're super fast, and they'll take anything. They'll take acid soil, basic soil. They'll take asphalt. <laughs> they just do anything. If you get land-raised chickpeas that are actually used to growing like that, how's that? that 40 is, days to green peas. Yeah, that is remarkable. I never thought of it that way. And like, what will grow within a quick time period? That could be a staple that will need the the least amount of inputs, either in terms of maintenance or, or outside uh, nutrition, and you know provide the the necessity for for a common diet around the world. That's such a remarkable concept. So, um, I'm 
I guess I'm supposed to voice some of this uh, more in public over the next year. That's my plan anyhow. Uh, so you may or may not be hearing more about it, depending on whether people scream and laugh and run out going, who is that guy? <laughs> or what? so far in the research places I've presented this, I have really good resonance because gen geneticists recognize this immediately. All of them individually are working on these fast crops. None of them are working in polyculture. And I'm going, come on, nobody ever just went and grew chickpeas. They were chickpeas yes. with, you know, you name it. And it was in there. So it was at least six crops together. They could harvest them all, shock them, hang them upside down or whatever and dry them. And then they could actually mill that stuff together to make bread, or they could do what's called triage, which before World War One was not a medical term. It was about separating seeds after harvest. Mm -hmm. That's as old as mankind, womankind too, humanity. So well, that's this also makes it so much more approachable than someone who feels disconnected from their sources of food, especially producing them in these ways that connect far beyond just the the simple tasks of sowing, maintenance, harvest, cooking, right? But actually forming relationships and being an active part of the evolution of the genetics and the expressions thereof in hopes to get ahead of the challenges that are coming through climate change, through topsoil loss, through hydrological cycle degradation, and play a more active role than just what you can find in the in the grocery store and, and you know, fill your belly with. All true. And it comes back to community ag, ag on the ground. Kids, we lose kids in the fifth grade pretty much. They come back in high school if they're motivated. But before the fifth grade, we can do anything with children with regard to plants. They have it naturally. And it's odd that sure. somehow our culture managed to move them out of that for four or five years in their youth and not bring them back or even let them go to begin with. I'm not sure what the bridge is, but we've done a lot of work with you know, school education programs around the United States and somewhat overseas too. Bottom line is uh, the idea of fast crops, that actually fits into everything for every culture for every age. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that put something in the ground and walk away and come back in, you know, <laughs> six weeks and you got food yeah. and you didn't have to do anything because it doesn't take chemicals. It doesn't take anything. Just stick the seed in the ground and walk away. All drought tolerant, heat tolerant, cold tolerant, altitude tolerant. You just find the stuff with the most tolerances and mix it up and climb it in the ground. Don't make it complicated. So I'm thinking now if people who are listening to this feel motivated to take a more active role and maybe try out some of the experiments like you're talking about, what advice would you give them to get started? Where can they gain more knowledge? Where can they gain access to some of these seeds that you're talking about? What are these steps? Well, any seed company has these seeds and they can look for seeds that are fast, that are culinary. And then and we're, we're, if they want to do it with vegetables, they can do it with vegetables too, but uh, ideal in staples. And we uh, suggest that staples are easier than veggies because veggies are perishable. Staples actually will regenerate themselves by shattering. That means the seed falls off the plant and then they'll feed them, they'll start a new generation of the same thing. So if you have something that's 38 days and you have a season that's three months long, well, that's interesting because you have a chance for three different crops from the same plant. So if you forget to go out and harvest the first set the first time, 
and weather, catastrophic weather doesn't interrupt you, or even if it does, you have more seed, you plant it, right? So you just look for seeds that are available. And since everyone has the internet these days, it's super easy. Just find a reputable seed company that shows days to maturity for the staples that they're offering. And there's hundreds of thousands of those worldwide in every language you can think of right there on the internet. Easy. Sure. And then How you get the important is it, it to find an, a land race breed, uh, something with open and active genetics rather than something that has been inbred to the point of breeding depression? Uh, I was assuming, and you're correct to make that note. Thanks. Uh, uh, you're, you're talking about seeds that are land race that actually have their own genetics uh, for broad adaptation and broad tolerances uh, already built in. So that would be uh, looking for seeds that have not been manipulated with modern genetics, and that's an easy ask. So if you are looking at a seed company that's talk about Mendelian, you actually have to know what period Mendelian that research was done, because if if it's not very recent, they weren't thinking about anything but the narrow windows where those seeds were produced to be able to do industrial farming. It's very rare to come across uh, non-zone specific uh, land race uh, Mendelian seeds that weren't actually specified into a certain zone and season. And these days, say here in America, uh, if you were in Texas, um, 10 years ago, and you went back to the same land today, it's like you were in Mexico 10 years ago. Right. You're no longer in Texas. And if you're in Arkansas, which is north of Texas, 10 years ago, now you'd be in Missouri to get the same kind of, which is above Arkansas, in order to get the same zone. So the zones are moving. So breeding for zones no longer makes it local, quote unquote, because right. the seeds fire if the breeding isn't one thing that makes them blow up it'll be the local climate land races on the other hand are tolerant given the fact that the person offering them is open about the communication for what their purpose was where they're grown and how they respond so can you take you know corn that was bred grown as a land race by hand say in Florida in the United States and take it to Maine and grow it? And the answer is maybe or maybe not. But the person offering that seed can tell you exactly whether you can or can't. Yeah. And that's just a click on your computer to ask the question. If you don't ask, you won't know. It's amazing that that's available at this point. It's a fantastic resource. And speaking of which, uh, before we wrap up here, Glenn, how can our listeners reach out to you? Maybe tap into the network of passionate people like yourself who are moving this forward, who are pushing the boundaries and also recovering the, the history of the genetics of these staple crops and maybe even participate or learn more. Yeah, well, they can email me directly at glenngeliannsmilk.com. I get thousands of these emails a day and I answer my own email. Um, it's a major part of what I'm doing now because that communication is really important because just like I just said, a seed source needs to be able to know their seed system inside and out and give you honest answers about where you are, how it works, and whatever. Uh, we have that with farmers. Uh, and we also, we jury 
the big stuff we give away, obviously, because if we just did it indiscriminately, we probably wouldn't be effective. So we have to know on the other end that people both know what they're doing, know what they're getting, and know what to do with it. So that on the larger scale, that's a jury thing, and that's out of the public view. It's done with a group of us, uh, and we decide who's going to get it. And then for casual asks, um, I do almost all of them, and we send the seed for free if they want it. Uh, and if they want to call me and talk about it, I'd be glad to talk to them. I don't sleep much. <laughs> That's a good little preface there. Well, look, Glenn, it's been an absolute joy getting a window into this world. I mean, I see not only so much potential in the the projects that you're involved with, but this becoming a larger movement. I, I see great engagement and a lot of interest in my own audience. And I mean, this has been one of the things that I've been passionate to explore about, uh, partly through the window that was open through Joseph Lofhouse, who recommended that I get in touch with you and the work that they're doing with Going to Seed. There is a movement growing around this, and, and I'm so glad to see people like you making it more accessible, making this information available, and I really appreciate what you do. Well, it's a pleasure and an honor, and I appreciate what you do too. So keep it up, and thank you so much for your service. Thanks once again to Glenn. I will point you in the direction now to the show notes for this episode on the website at regenerativeskills.com for all of the resources and the links that he mentioned there at the end of the episode. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. Music